0: Shalom, I am Yossi Kalmanovich. Welcome to Yum the World. It's a storytelling show where everyone gets a what? A piece. A peak. Peace. A a
1: piece.
2: Hey, Yum's the word. Haven't you heard? Yum's the
1: word. It was started. By a bird. My name is Robin. And her hair has lots of curls. Actually, I blow it out a lot. Stories, some like wetting the bed next to your boyfriend. Pretty funny and absurd. Like your boss tickling your side boob. So welcome all you nerds. and cool people too. This is for everyone except
2: kids. Yums the word.
1: Hey everybody, welcome to Yum's the Word. I am Robin Gelfenbein and at the top you heard Yossi. Now I just got back from a trip to Israel with my mom and Yossi was our tour guide. So on today's episode, Yossi is going to take the place of Auntie because he's another 70 something Jew. And he happens to speak Yiddish fluently. It's going to be weird not to have Auntie on this episode, but you are going to love Yossi. Now, this was my very first trip to Israel, and it was absolutely incredible. I went in the Dead Sea. I visited the Wailing Wall, uh, where I was minutes from a stabbing, actually. Uh, I went to the Jordan River, where Jesus was baptized, like any good little Jew would do. And as instructed by Auntie explicitly, I ate everything. Their pita is unbelievable. The food over there is so damn good. So anyway, one of the highlights was visiting the kibbutz that auntie visited 50 years ago. And so now after that trip, I definitely feel more connected to my heritage. I'm not going to lie. So today we're going to feature two very funny Jewish storytellers, and we're going to play a few excerpts from our last show where we had a Yiddish quiz with Lynn Bixenspan from this great storytelling show called Relationship, and Peter Gross, who you may know from Veep, uh, or wait, wait, don't tell me. So our first story comes from someone you may have heard of. Robin Jill, and Bean. Thanks, Sari. This story is about how I tried to thwart my high school musical my senior year. Um, When I was in high school, day after day, I would hear, hey, big head, I can't see the board, big head. (laughs) And it was these guys from the hockey team who would shout this to me in math class every day for pretty much all of freshman year. And it was a little bit understandable because I did have like a total jufro that was shaped like a trapezoid Brillo pad essentially so I was you know essentially like blocking them to some degree but it wasn't that bad um, but I never said anything because it was just humiliating and then the longer I stayed quiet the more that they would do things like they would write big head all over my locker every morning and every morning I'd go in and scrub it off with a bottle of Windex then one time they threw a, they put a stink bomb in the stairwell to block me from getting to my locker and i just like held my nose and ran right through it i was like i have to scrub that off so high school wasn't exactly fun so i was like i need to find a place where i can just be myself and that place for me was chorus those were my people i loved people in chorus and the only thing i wanted throughout all of high school i wanted nothing more than to be the lead in our high school musical but year after year It eluded me and I was always relegated to the chorus. And I thought it was because I was an alto and it always went to a soprano. That was my theory. (laughs) So senior year comes and they announced that we're gonna be doing a production of Calamity Jane. And I was like, giddy up, this is awesome. Because Calamity Jane was a renegade. They needed somebody who could dance and sing and it was an alto and I was like, oh my God, this part was essentially made for me. So I go to the audition and it's in the auditorium and it's me and a single spotlight and our choral director, Mr. Schmidt. He's sitting out in the audience. Now Mr. Schmidt was hands down the most intimidating person I had ever met. He would get so angry with us at like the littlest things and like slam his hand down on the piano. So he was just not somebody he wanted to really ever piss off. Which was weird because he kind of looked like a tall Bruce Valanche. (laughs) (laughs) And he always wore his clothes like two sizes too small. He was always like popping out of his clothes. So, but I was like, you know what? I I think I've got a really good shot at this. And I also thought I was kind of in with Mr. Schmidt because I was in the select choir and we had done these concerts around the Hartford area at like school assemblies and nursing homes. It was quite the circuit. And, (laughs) And I was like, you know, I feel like I've gotten to know him a little bit. So I do my audition, I feel really good. And as I leave, he goes, good job. And he never told anybody how they did when they left. So I was kind of like skipping out of the auditorium. So a week goes by and we have our first rehearsal. And Mr. Schmidt had a very unconventional way of doing things. He announced to the chorus who got which parts at the very first rehearsal. Usually you find out in advance, so you're not like embarrassed as you like leave while everybody else goes into the auditorium. <laughs> So I go bounding through the chorus room doors and I see the cast list and I look across Calamity Jane and I don't see my name and I was like, huh, maybe there's a mistake. And then I keep looking down, looking down, and I don't see my name until I get to the very bottom, which meant I was in the chorus once again. And I was so angry because he had given the part to somebody who will call Maureen, because that's her name. And Maureen was a junior and I was like, uh-uh. That is so not fair. But I I was, I was, didn't know what to do. I was like, well, you know, I'm the consummate professional. The show must go on. <laughs> so I think Mr. Schmidt g- felt kind of bad for me because he did end up giving me one line. And that one line was told from backstage.
2: <laughs>
1: Kick her while she's down. And the line was, it's the Deadwood stage. I memorized it as soon as I got it. <laughs> that was it. And it was the cue for the big opening number where all of the villagers come out and everybody's frolicking and happy and gay and life is so great here in Deadwood. So um, we uh, opening night comes and everybody's like backstage and they, everybody's got like, opening night jitters and passes is all buzz, 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 buzz. And I'm watching Maureen and I'm just furious. I'm just like, this is so not fair, this should have been mine. And she was going to be giving me my cue. So it's just about to get to my part, and something comes over me, and I decide to take some liberties with that line. (laughs) And for some reason, even though the story took place in the wild, wild west, I thought um, a southern accent would be appropriate. (laughs) So I channeled my inner Delta Burke, and I just unleashed Mr. Schmidt no. was like, he is not gonna be happy. So, the the show ends, and my friends and some of the castmates come up to me, and they're like, "Guilty by them, so funny. What are you gonna do tomorrow?" And I was like, "Oh, I don't know. Like, I, I hadn't planned that, you know." And then I thought, well, you know, I got such a warm reception. I don't want to let my fans down. And it occurred to me that I could get away with this relatively anonymously. Like, there was no mention in the program of Village Idiot played by (laughs) Robin (laughs) Valentine. So the next night comes, and in typical Mr. Schmidt fashion, we get notes right before the show. And for anybody who has ever done anything in theater, you know that gives you absolutely no time to rehearse or prepare or anything. So we're sitting there in the course room, he's giving me notes to to the leads and some of the supporting characters and i'm just waiting for him to say something to me and he doesn't and i thought oh well he probably just figured oh she needed to get that out of her system. <laughs> i was like he doesn't know me very well <laughs> so second night comes and uh so the show starts and this time i am like give it to me maureen give it to me because i'm like i don't know what i'm going to say i don't know what i'm going to say but i know it's going to be good so she gives me my my cue and i go Whoo! peripheral vision like he's like losing his shit so So, closing night comes and everybody's crowded into the coral room and we're all like you know excited but sad that it's our final show and it's my final show of high school and he is giving notes to the leads and he's giving notes again to some of the other supporting characters and he's getting really angry like you can see like crimson is filling up his face he's just so And finally, he looks at me dead in the eye and he slams the piano down so hard and he goes, No improvising, stick to the script! (laughs) And the whole room goes silent. And he and I, it's like high noon. but at this point, he has like totally put the fear of God in me. And I, it's all through high school. Like I never got in trouble. I never went to detention. Like I was always a good kid. And I was like, oh, I thought I had like one more shot at this tonight. But I was like, I don't want to get in trouble. My parents would be so upset with me. So I just went. And so the show starts, and I'm watching little Miss Soccer Player fuck her way through this whole show. <laughs> And I'm thinking about the last four years, and how I never got the lead, and how those hockey players made me feel like crap, and I never said anything to them, and how Mr. Schmidt never really realized the talent I had inside of me, and I was like, fuck you, Mr. Schmidt. You want to cut me off? Do it Oscar style. I don't care. So she gives me my line, and I just went to town. And I was like, woo! <laughs> and I just, like, as sad as it is, like, that was the highlight of my high school career. <laughs> <laughs> but I relished every second of it. And even though technically I was not given the lead, I still always felt like I stole the show <laughs> by playing my own version of Calamity Jane. Thank you, guys. <laughs> I've come a long way since those high school days. Yee-haw! Now, I recently tested Auntie on her knowledge of Yiddish. You can see the video at com slash auntie. When I asked her if she knew what a knipple was, she was stumped. But Yossi, of course, had the answer. Do you know what uh, knipple means?
0: Knipple, yes. Knipple actually means a nut. But when people say knipple, it's to make a nut in your handkerchief. And that's when you take your handkerchief, you it reminds you that you shouldn't forget something. That's what a knipple is. Uh, knipple means a nut. a nut. A nut. A nut. And people make
2: a knipple in the handkerchief. Okay. And that's to remind you that you shouldn't forget something.
1: Todayosi That means thank you in Hebrew. See, you don't just get funny stories at Yom's the Word. You learn a little something. Now, our last show fell the day after Yom Kippur, so we called it Yom's the Word, and it featured a night of Jewish storytellers. I thought it would be fun to test their knowledge of Yiddish. So here's Lynn Bixen's fan from Relationship and Peter Gross from Veep. And wait, wait, don't tell me.
2: I was just saying that I tried to teach myself Yiddish when I was in fourth grade. That's how dorky I was. I really was like, I, I got a book uh, that my grandma's friend gave me called Der Yiddisher Lehrer, if you guys know what that means. That it. it means the Yiddish teacher, right? It's people over here who know. Okay, I thought you guys all knew Yiddish, right? Weren't these Yiddish experts over here before? Okay, fine, don't back me up, I'm fine.
1: <laughs> okay, so this one is a, uh, a very short phrase. Um, Belik vi borscht. I like to
2: eat borscht. <laughs> I, like, I like to eat borscht.
1: It's a very good guess, Lynn. Very good guess. Uh, according to the Yiddish slang and idioms, it is cheap as beet soup. <laughs> and also a real bargain.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and now to fail the Yiddish quiz. Um, I also have a, before we say this, I have a great uh, Hungarian curse from my dad that reminds me of, like, what was it? Go take a shit in the ocean or whatever it was? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this is... Uh, he used to say this all the time. If he was, like, would, like, stub his toe, he would scream, like, Sonja Rad, Picharad! And Sonyarad Rad, Picharad. So it's Hungarian. It, sound, it doesn't sound like any other language. Um, but what it means is... And I only found this out when I was a teenager. It means... <laughs> may you slide down my back and break with your tongue. Which basically means, like, just, like, slalom down my back and stick your tongue in my ass. I think. So he would say that a lot. Like, all the time when I was, like, five, six Because I never knew what it meant until he told me. Okay.
1: Um, I'm going to give you another F1 because I think the F1s are funny. Um, Fine
2: cockin'. Well, that... There's so many of them that sound so <laughs> gay-adjacent. Uh, <laughs> Feincockin is actually the name of a gay porn, I think. <laughs> I looked right at the rabbi. I don't know why I did that. Um, I'm sorry. Okay, Feincockin. Actually, Feincockin, I think, is like uh, like uh, um, like an attractive animal. <laughs> I don't know. Like that cow is Feincockin. <laughs> well
1: it potentially was an attractive animal before because fine means omelet or scrambled eggs. <laughs> fine cockin', gay
2: cockin',
1: I see a pattern here. Our next storyteller is Josh Gondelman. Josh is a writer for Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. I first saw him tell this story a few years ago and I asked him to tell it again at our last show because it was so damn funny. It's about the time that he took a CEO to task over a penis enhancement product.
0: Thank you. So Robin said that there are going to be some stories that are funny and some stories that are touching and I'm going to tell a funny story about touching, I guess, (laughs) is what I'm going to do. Uh, And this is... Here's the context for it. Yesterday was Yom Kippur, the Jewish Day of Atonement, and I generally try to reach out to people who I've wronged and try try to set the record straight because I I don't like unfinished business, and I I don't like leaving it open ended. And I think Yom Kippur, even though I'm not super religious, that's like kind of a great occasion to do that. So I just try to set things straight. And there's one person that I haven't been able to bring myself to uh, apologize to or. Uh, Get on good terms with, and I'll and that this is the story. I'll tell you that story. The the this is also the story I should tell you. The way I see it is, it's the story of my getting to vanquish a nemesis, and that's impressive. Most people don't get to do that ever, and if they do, it takes like decades, right? You've got to learn how to sword fight in a cave, find the six fingered man who killed your father. There's legwork involved. I handled my nemesis in half a week. That's incredible, right? (laughs) Three days. That's amazing. Here's something else I'll tell you right up top. My nemesis was the CEO of a pharmaceutical corporation. Yeah, and that sounds like a worthy adversary till I tell you he was the CEO of a pharmaceutical company that manufactured a penis-numbing spray marketed towards premature ejaculators. So, less of a formidable opponent, because we're talking about a medical doctor who at some point in his life went, you know what, you guys work on cancer. I'm going to hook it up for the dudes who think sex feels too awesome. That's... Why? No reason? Have you been talking to Sheila? Uh, So... The reason this guy's in my life at all is because I used to do, and I still do, I guess, a lot of writing for women's magazines, and an editor that I write for sometimes emailed me and was like, Josh, will you test and write about this penis numbing spray marketed towards premature ejaculators? And I said, like any man would, why would you even ask me that? That's never happened to me before. (laughs) And she responded by emailing me how much money she would pay me for it. And I sent back an one-word email, just, yes! And then I had to send a second email apologizing for how brief my initial email had been. <laughs> promising future correspondence would be more mutually satisfying. <laughs> Offering to buy brunch the next day. You guys understand. So I pick up the penis-numbing spray. And that night, I'm on a third date with a young lady. And we hadn't slept together at that point. And which becomes relevant in a moment. So we're drunk, and I mentioned this writing assignment I had, and she said, and I quote, I'm not into that at all. <laughs> which was very reasonable. As I mentioned, we hadn't had sex, and she didn't want me coming at her for the first time with like a dead-eyed, remorseless Javier Bardem in no country for old men boner. Just deciding who lives and dies by the flip of a coin on the tip. <laughs> She says, I'm not into that. And I say, incredibly righteously, fine. Then I'll take care of that on my own. Which is the most like heart any man has ever put into declaring he was leaving a date to masturbate at home. And that's what I did. I went home and I used the maximum recommended dosage of penis numbing spray. I used 10 spritzes, which is a lot. I wanted to use one more, uh, but I, I did, I, so I could go, oh, my penis goes to 11. But I didn't want to potentially ruin my body forever over a spinal tap reference <laughs> that no one would enjoy. So I used 10 spritzes and I got to work. And I don't know, it wasn't great. I don't know if this is true about other men here or if it's just me. But a big part of my enjoyment of any sexual experience is being able to feel my penis. And I couldn't. It was like listening to a fish song. I was 25 minutes in, just no end in sight. A lot of aimless noodling, like, boo, is this still the same thing? I thought the live version was supposed to be good. This should be a new thing by now. Should have finished. So eventually I did finish, and it wasn't great. Like, you know how normally when you finish that, like for a guy, it's like a moist firework. Uh, it's very <laughs> exciting, a lot of fun. This time it wasn't. It was like sometimes, but the closest frame of reference I have is sometimes you're eating pizza, and there's one slice left. And you could either find a Tupperware or some saran wrap and put it away. But instead of doing that, you reluctantly kind of wood chip <laughs> it down like Steve Buscemi at the end of Fargo. That's the second and final character actor in this joke. Anyway, it was like that, but down here is the point. So I finish. I, file the, I write the article. I file it. It runs on the magazine's website a few days later. And... Uh, Uh, I get an an email from the CEO of the company, and he is mad. Probably because I said the words in that article that I just said to you out loud now. (laughs) He's not happy. And I didn't even read his email. That's a true fact. Honestly, goodness, haven't read it to this day. But I know he was angry because the title of the email was This is Ridiculous! (laughs) And I could tell by the little uh, preview that popped up on my phone that the body of the email wasn't like a video of a pug pushing another pug in a stroller. <laughs> so I was like, he's probably mad at me. I'm not going to deal with this. So I, uh, I, di- I didn't. I said to no one, he'll hear from me when I hear from his lawyer, which is just a thing I saw John Hamm say once on TV. It sounded cool. So the nec- I go to bed. The next morning I wake up to an email from his lawyer. <laughs> I was like, t nemesis, the game is afoot. (laughs) So I had to get a lawyer to deal with his lawyer, because I wasn't going to let him push me around, because I couldn't go to jail over this. Do you understand what I mean? Because when you go to jail, they don't let you bring your penis numbing spray to keep the other dudes at bay. They they take it at the door. They're like, this is jail, not a swingers party, you creep. (laughs) So so I, I got a lawyer... And my lawyer and his lawyer went back and forth for three days, and I was riddled with anxiety. And I don't know what it takes, what lawyers do over three days. I assumed they were just leaving each other voicemails like, objection, overruled. (laughs) Because everything I know about the law, I learned from (laughs) Ice-T.
2: After
0: three days, I get a call from my lawyer who's just like, don't worry about it, dude. Everything's cool. And I was like, can you not talk like that? You're a lawyer. And he was like, don't worry about it. Everything's fine. There's no further recourse he'll take. We changed a couple words in the article, and you're in the clear. And I felt an immense sense of relief. I felt incredible. And then, 30 minutes later, I get another email from the CEO, which I didn't read. But I did reply to. (laughs) I wrote, dear sir. Actually, I wrote, dear Chad. That's what I wrote. His name wasn't even Chad. Chad. He just had a Chad-like demeanor, so that's what I called him. I was very cocky. I was on top of the world. Or a dear Chad. I believe our business to be concluded. I expect no further communication from you. I apologize for being brief, but it appears that's kind of your thing. Winky face emoji. Good luck with all your penis-numbing endeavors, both professional and I'm assuming personal tongue out emoji. (laughs) Good day, Josh. And I wrote the email that way for two reasons. One, I knew by writing a terse professional email I'd be on the record (laughs) saying, you're out of my life, back off. I don't want this anymore, we're done. Two, I knew by writing a terse professional email I would make him furious. inciting him to reply right away, which he did. He emailed me immediately. I didn't read that one either. I did write back one sentence, all caps. I said good day, sir! (laughs) Nemesis vanquished. So I still kind of feel like I owe him an apology. (laughs) But a bigger part of me thinks we're even, and he can fuck off forever. (laughs) Thank you guys so much. Have a great night. (laughs)
1: A zoi vert dos kichelt zecheraken. You're welcome.
0: (laughs) Every Yiddish expression is either like a very mild compliment or a very Yiddish insult. So either that means like a face that's acceptable to the eyes of a mother, or it just means like suck two dicks and call me never.
1: (laughs) Close enough. It's, uh, that's how the cookie crumbles. (laughs) Thank you so much, Josh. Give it for Josh. That was Josh Gondelman. You can follow him on Twitter at Josh Gondelman. That's G-O-N-D-E-L-M-A-N. He's also one of the creators of one of my favorite Twitter handles. It's called Modern Seinfeld. And they put George, Jerry, Elaine, and Kramer in modern day society. It is absolutely hilarious. And you can follow that at Seinfeld today. Now, if you're going to be in New York City in the next few weeks, we'd love to see you at our next live show. It is Wednesday, November 11th at 7.30 p.m. at Le Poisson Rouge. The theme is cold feet, stories of being scared or nervous, and tickets are available at yumsthewordshow.com. The stories you just heard were recorded live at Le Poisson Rouge in New York City. The podcast is produced by me, Robin Gelfenbein, and Alex Fulton, and the theme song is by Mark Radcliffe. Special thanks to Vince Fairchild, Michael Cedar, Danny Ortiz, Megan Deneen, and of course, Yossi. I'm Robin Gelfenbein. Thanks for listening, and until next time.
0: It's actually a mixture of Hebrew and English. I make shit on the ocean yeah, like and take a leak in the pool. <laughs>